I'm Simba Kader, and you're listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. Today, I am chatting with none other than James Alcorn. James is an investor at Zed Ventures. His investments include amazing MLOps companies like Semi Technologies, the makers of WeB8, and ourselves here at Feature Farm. He also has investments in many applied ML companies, including Galley and Enzo Data. James observes and sits on many of these companies' boards, and we're super stoked here at Feature Forum to be able to call him a board member. James, it's awesome to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been a long time coming. Why don't we start by sharing how you got into VC? Well, I think the, the important background is, so I came to the U.S. from Australia, where I grew up when I was 18, to come to college here in the Bay Area. As soon as I dropped into San Francisco, you know, you're completely inundated by technology and the kind of technology ecosystem and community. So it was an interest in the investing side of that kind of grew through my time at Berkeley and after college went out and worked in private equity for a year or two and then moved into the venture side of things and really haven't looked back since. So it was kind of a, a quick and organic move into investing after kind of just really being surrounded by by the technology ecosystem in the Bay. What made you focus on MLOps? The focus on MLOps really came from, you know, our focus as a firm is in investing in both machine learning applications. And that's really been the kind of historic focus of, of Zeta Venture Partners. But by virtue of investing in the in the machine learning application companies, you really get a sense for what is going on under the hood in terms of what MLOps technologies they're using. It was really just by working with those application companies that we got super excited by the infrastructure and the tooling that people were using to kind of get models into production, to monitor them, to retrain them, to make sure they're kind of working in, in uh, the way that you expect. So it was an organic thing. Yeah, it makes some sense. I guess you're investing in the applied ML companies and you got to see these problems. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think what's been interesting is, you know, over the past two years, especially as more and more companies are willing to use third party solutions or or actually buy software from MLOps vendors as opposed to hand rolling their own stuff. The trend that was maybe emerging one or two years ago is now becoming very, very obvious. And that's quite exciting from an investment standpoint. What changed? Why weren't people buying MLOps four years ago? Or did the companies not exist? Like what's what's happening that has caused this kind of stark shift in the last few years? It's a good question. And this is not a very novel answer. But I really do think it comes down to the kind of maturity cycle of machine learning and AI. Like people are putting models into deployment. And when you're putting things into production, you start dealing with production issues. So I think it really has to do with with just the maturity cycle of of machine learning in general across the enterprise. You mentioned that a lot of your learnings about MLOps come from talking to the companies doing ML themselves and seeing what they're facing, things that they've built probably in-house, things that they're buying. What else do you do? Like, how else do you learn about MLOps? No, and I'm not a, I'm not a practitioner. I never have been. I, you know, I studied economics in my undergrad, so I'm not technical. So I do a lot of reading. I spent a lot of time reading a lot of academic papers. I also spent a lot of time talking to practitioners and enterprise buyers to try and get a, a good sense of the shape of demand for these, these MLOps companies within each of the specific categories along the MLOps value chain. And then honestly, in terms of investing in MLOps companies, there is kind of all the quantitative work that you need to do and, and the talking to customers and, and talking to businesses. But then a good amount of it as well is also intuition. Trying to estimate and predict where the market will move in two to three years. A lot of that is just based on intuition as well. The things you're mentioning maybe are probably not things that practitioners think a lot about. Like, for example, think about where the market's moving. Like, they're more just like trying to solve problems at hand. Firstly, could you make clear like the differences in how you think from a practitioner? That's a good question. I would qualify this by saying 
as someone who has never been a practitioner, I don't want to put words in people's mouths, but here's, here's how I would hypothesize that I, that, you know, that an investor might think about it differently, differently to a practitioner. But aside from, you know, if a practitioner is concerned about developer ergonomics of a specific tool, scalability, consistency, like, is it going to fit with my existing stack? I think the investor is, yes, definitely concerned with all those elements, but is also looking beyond that to things like the ultimate market size for this product, the quality of the founding team, all these kind of different qualitative attributes around the company that maybe wouldn't be top of mind for a practitioner. So what do you think a practitioner could learn from how you think about things? What from, I mean, there are a lot of things that probably don't matter, how you think for practitioners. But I'm sure there's a lot of things they could pick up. I know obviously you're not a practitioner. But if you had to say, well, like, what are some things that you do when you look at companies that you think a practitioner or a buyer should also be doing? Well, I think for a buyer, there's probably more to learn than a kind of practitioner. But I would say when looking at these companies, you know, incorporating, so if an investor is looking at things outside of just those specific elements around a product and the kind of the technical features that I spoke about, I think some of that holds value for buyers and for practitioners. Like the quality of a founding team of an early stage startup is often very, very correlated to the quality of the product and the quality of the experience that the buyer is going to get. So I think, you know, incorporating a view on, on those elements as well actually could have some value for, for a buyer or a practitioner as well. Yeah, it's super interesting. I know I look for it. When we buy stuff from earlier companies, I like to talk to the founder and it's more just to understand how they think, where we're going. And like you said, just someone who, when you're buying an early stage product, you're investing into it in a way. And investment is kind of on the team. Like, MLOps is still so young. I have this conversation with people sometimes where I'm like, yeah, I mean, there is no MLOps company yet where you can just deploy tomorrow enterprise-wide, have no hiccups because they've done it a thousand times. It just There's no company that big yet and that mature yet. And so at this point, you know, you're kind of, you have a problem to be solved. So obviously you're looking at the product, but you're also kind of investing in, in the team. Like you're, you're, kind of, you're making a technical investment in this thing. I agree. I think it kind of leads to another point, which I think is, the really high quality teams are building really high quality products in, in large and high quality markets. Like these things are often very tightly correlated. So I think you actually can glean a lot of insight around the nature and the character of a product in a company through going out and assessing its market and going out and assessing its positioning and going out and learning about its founders. I think all those things are, uh, are very informative. Well, you do this for a living. Like you're, Part of your, your job is just to be able to, I guess, suss out the quality of a founding team. For someone who's a buyer, they they would just want as much experience doing it as you will. What do you look for? What are the main ways you kind of can look at, let's say you were a buyer or in your case you're investing? What are the some basic things you can do to make sure that you're doing this diligence as you're buying? That's a good question. Look, something that I often like to do with founders is to actually just, you know, in initial conversations to not speak specifically about their business or product, but to have a conversation that has a larger context or kind of covers a broader surface area. Because I think a lot of these venture-backed founders are pitching for a living, so they can get very, very good at telling a particular story or a narrative. So it's often super insightful to get to kind of break out of that story or narrative and get get people speaking about, you know, things that they haven't necessarily rehearsed. So I think that's like, that's one easy technique to really understand, you know, what makes someone tick. And the idea of what makes someone tick also gives you that insight into kind of who they are and what the character is and, and how determined they are. I've even had in some of my early calls, especially with like, I guess, C-level people at bigger companies, a lot of times they'll 
ask me questions not about feature stores, but just about MLOps in general. And I think it's a little bit of this, of like them trying to, one, learn, but also to try to gauge what our view of feature form, my, my own view is, on MLOps more broadly outside of feature stores. Most MLOps companies are specifically focused on one point of the stack. Like they don't know, there isn't really MLOps platforms that live in a, uh, their own bubble. Like everything's kind of associated with other parts of the ecosystem. And I think asking questions that way can help you understand if someone just like has built a point solution and that's all they think about versus, hey, like we're really thinking about the problem to be solved, which is usually much broader. And you're, you're actually very good at that. Like I've been on the receiving end of this myself. You're very, very good at kind of asking those open-ended questions about the state and the future of MLOps. And I think there's a good reason for that. Like the jury is out on what MLOps is going to be. Like it really is on the platform versus the kind of standalone solution debate on the cloud vendor debate. Like the jury truly is out. So I think finding people who have a strong, a strong opinion and are convicted about, you know, a certain version of the future, like that's appealing, certainly to an investor that's appealing. And I think that's appealing to a buyer as well. It's interesting because your overstated analogy of you need to skate to where the puck's going to be, not where it is, but you're almost kind of doing both. Because you also have to kind of build to what the state of the world is today, but also be aware of what your state of the world is going to be in a few years. Because you don't want to, like, I guess, squeeze yourself out, but also you need to be valuable today. Well, you got to you got to be alive. You got to be a going concern, and then you also have to design and deliver your version of the future as well. So, yeah, I think it is a combination of the two. Yeah, a lot of what we do is just also educating this because there is so much noise in the space. We talked a bit about point and class solutions and platforms. Do you think that? In the future, it will be mostly platforms, mostly point solutions, a mix. Yeah, how do you think about that? Yeah, well, I would actually start by making the distinction between cloud vendors that offer an MLOps platform and then kind of a pure play MLOps platform, so a company that really makes the majority of its revenue by selling an application or infrastructure as opposed to compute. So I think the cloud vendors will always offer end-to-end MLOps platforms because it drives demand for kind of their core services. Whether kind of pure play MLOps platforms, you know, will exist and and come to dominate the market, I think that's an open question. And I think it's an open question because we're actually kind of in the early innings of this this current generation of MLOps businesses that are going out and finding a specific problem and building a really custom and tailored um, and high quality solution to that, to solving that one problem that is at one point along the MLOps kind of value chain. We are seeing, I think, the first signs of businesses that have entered at one point try to kind of vertically integrate along that value chain but whether they will be able to do so sustainably like whether they'll be able to compete against companies that are going against one specific point i think it's an open question it really is so i think time will tell but the early evidence suggests that people are happy to pull together a number of different mlops solutions if they are best in class at this specific problem they are solving it's interesting because it feels like it used to all be platforms and it's moved to being all point solutions. And yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if, if all these point solutions, the ones that succeed, end up building all the other points, just vertically integrating or, or you know, they maintain their own points. I, I think on that point, I mean, like the, it's a kind of attractive and like almost consensus view to say, okay, MLOps right now is in a tool, tool chain sprawl. Like there is a sprawl of MLOps companies and that leads to consolidation. I think that's a, a line of argument that you'll hear a lot throughout the investor community and, and maybe throughout the founder community as well. But I don't necessarily know if that is true. And I look to DevOps 
you know, as a segment that is that is instructive for MLOps. And I think in DevOps, like there are very, very large businesses that are built around one specific part of the DevOps, DevOps uh, tool chain. So I don't necessarily think it's a foregone conclusion that just because a sprawl exists um, and that there are many companies going after specific parts of the MLOps tool chain, that that will naturally lead to a consolidation and that will naturally lead to platform businesses kind of emerging as, as the, the leaders there. So I would just I would I would be wary of making too strong a statement around either version of the future. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, GitLab and HashiCorp as two examples. They're both DevOps companies. They've both gone public. They've both grown like crazy. They're both DevOps. There's definitely overlap. There's overlap between everyone a little bit, but they're two companies that are very different. I think it's just probably a mix of DevOps is one of those things where there is no perfect answer for everyone. And MLOps is probably very, I think it's very similar in that way. Size of company, size of data, what you're doing. Your vision is just going to look very different from MLP. It's going to look different from tabular data. If you're a bank, it's just going to look very different from if you're you know, a startup. And trying to build a platform that solves it for everyone is just not really possible. Or solves it well for everyone. <laughs> Where they're all going to want to use it, I don't think it's really possible unless you build something that is almost configurable. Right. But even if you do build something that is like highly configurable, there's going to be portions of demand or portions of customers who don't want something that's highly configurable. No, I agree. Yeah. And that's almost the argument of having like platforms versus point class. Like, will there just be, you know, a computer vision platform that is really good for startups of a certain size working on a specific space? Yeah. It will be interesting to see how it all plays out. Yeah, and you know what I think is like if if you want to continue on the the kind of DevOps versus MLOps kind of analogizing, I think a really interesting question is what is going to be the ultimate size of the MLOps market relative to that of DevOps? Um, and I think there's arguments both ways here. The argument against MLOps being larger is that kind of DevOps is a much broader or more horizontal tool space with with more companies and users who actually have a need for that for those um, tool sets. The argument for, or one argument for MLOps being larger, by contrast, is that, you know, the, the analytics done on top of the kind of core software engineering work is of higher value. And therefore, the kind of tools to support that high value analytic type workload would theoretically be worth more. You know, that's a, that's a really important question that I don't think gets asked a lot. But I think um, what the ultimate answer is, like the, the relative size of the MLOps to the DevOps market will have a very, very large impact on how we look back on this age of machine learning and AI and the rise of this kind of software category and kind of where it sits in the history of technology. How do you think about the different spaces interacting? Like there are parts of MLOps which are really DevOps problems. Um, you know, like it's, it's, it's very specific. There are other parts of it. For example, let's talk about monitoring. Like we've had infrastructure monitoring forever. Like we've had Prometheus, there's big companies like Splunk that kind of fall in that space. And obviously there's, there's many MLOs, specific ones that machine learning is going to have specific problems that only exist for machine learning. And the, the generic tools don't really solve that. Same kind of applies for data ops, like data cataloging. Like a lot of what we build even as a feature store is a much more specific and, and, and focused on a pain point or focus on a use case type of, of cataloging, amongst other things. When you think about kind of the interplay between data ops, ML ops, DevOps, and even just data infrastructure like Snowflake and Databricks kind of coming to the space of it, how do you 
how do you break that down? Like, obviously no one knows what it will be like in the future, but if you had to say like, how is it all going to play out or how is it going to be cut up, cut up? Well, I have an answer that it probably isn't going to be very useful. I actually think a lot of this is just semantics and it's like different nomenclature for different things. Fundamentally, I don't really care if a company is more on the data infrastructure side than the pure play MLOps or closer to DevOps than data infra. Like, I don't care. What I care about is finding businesses that can generate a lot of revenue very quickly and eventually produce cash flow. Like, that's it. And so, the, you know, the, it's a fun and almost like academic exercise to categorize businesses into their different segments and to make these like massive market maps and stuff like that. But I don't know if there is a whole lot of utility to doing it. Otherwise, you know, outside of just the, the exercise of doing it itself. And I know that's a very dissatisfying answer, but that's genuinely um, kind of how I approach that problem. It's almost like a question that doesn't matter just because who knows what the companies will look like in the future. Point is, they're all going to kind of lean into where they're most valuable, where there's, I guess, the most room for growth. That's just going to happen. And it's a bit associated with like where the, where are the problems going to lie in the next few years. Like if you know where the problems are going to lie, you could probably write a better market map, but I don't think anyone really knows. There's probably a little bit of Conway's law. I think this is true of like DevOps, where a lot of the way that DevOps is done, like the fact that we do CI/CD and like always considered to be one thing, is more of the fact that lots of the tools that did CI also just did CD, and so people just have always considered them like one component, even though they're obviously CD only things out there like like Spinnaker. So yeah, it'll be it'll, there's kind of a funny interplay between the market. What the market wants is kind of what will become to exist, but also there's some of the the tooling where people start, how they configure themselves in the market space, almost like might create some weird awkwardness in how things are cut up. And that just happens, I think, in every every market. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I think would be a real tragedy is if a company that considers itself to be an MLOps company made product or distribution or strategic choices that were kind of against their own interests in order to stay categorized as an MLOps company. Like that would be the the definition of, you know, a poor business strategy to, to, to make these decisions simply on the basis of remaining in, in one software category. So I think that's the potential danger of like us kind of glorifying those market distinction type exercises if, is if people take it kind of too far in terms of what they do with their business. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like, being focused on the problem, not focused on the categorization. Like, that's not MLOps, so we don't do that. Or, you know, that is MLOps, so we must do it as well. I've seen a lot of people just build things because they just, you know, everyone else has this type of thing, so we should have it too. It's almost like copying each other, but then it can become a little bit of the blind leading the blind because, like you said, no one really knows what it's going to look like in a few years. And even as a practitioner, you know what the problems to be solved right now but there isn't really a good example of what a perfect MLOps workflow looks like. Like we've talked to so many companies. I haven't talked to one where I'm like, yeah, everyone should do it this way. Like everyone has a lot of like problems that they're still working on solving. And a lot of them are very basic. Like lots and lots of spreadsheets being shared around, lots of Google Docs being shared around. Like we're still at that level, I think, in most big companies. Yeah, I actually think investors are somewhat at fault here. And I'll say, you know, I'm definitely guilty of it as well. Because we'll kind of go out and put out to the world, hey, we're looking for, you know, MLOps businesses. And then, you know, you're kind of ingraining that kind of core MLOps philosophy as as the hallowed ground, like the place to be and the, the companies to build. And if that leads businesses, as I said before, to make decisions that are kind of against their own long-term interests because they aspire to be an MLOps company, like that, that's a total tragedy. So 
I do think it's really a function of all the different actors in this ecosystem, which includes companies, which includes you know investors, which includes buyers. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Like I, I do, as someone as obviously someone who's in the in the ecosystem, I've seen a lot of companies pivot in. But what I also see, which is always interesting, is every few months, or not every few months, but there are like a few windows I remember distinctly where it felt it felt like there was a hundred new MLOps companies. But like I'd never heard of, and I felt like everyone just, you know, left their job at their fan company and started a company doing MLOps without really any sort of differentiation. Just like, yeah, we're also, uh, you know, name Buzzy, like we're also a feature store or whatever. That's fine. Like we need people in it. Like this is how the space is going to play out. But I think it was interesting that a lot of people came in without any differentiation. It's like we're we're you know yet another MLOps company. A lot of those companies just went away as quiet, almost as like quietly as they came. But I just remember there were these times where we would go into like a customer meeting and, you know, we have our competitors that we're well aware of that we run into in meetings all the time. But every once in a while we'll go in and we'll hear about like four or five companies we've never heard of. And it will be like one or two people who like haven't even left their job yet. And then there was like a few windows where that happened and they all just disappeared. So I, I do think that's a bit of, you know, people looking at investors, what investors are doing especially the market's hot and being like, oh, I can do that. Like I've built uh, X before, like I'll just go and start a company. And, and investors should not be um, leading, you know, those, those conversations and ideas about what the future is going to look like. Like we need to take our signal from founders. And I think you have to actively think about that and actively, you know, ensure that you're preserving that kind of relationship and balance because it can kind of get out of whack, I think. And that's where I think you can fall into real trouble as an investor. If you think you know a market better than a founder and therefore this idea won't work for reasons X, Y, and Z, well, I would actually say nine times out of 10, you're going to be wrong about that. It's almost like, because I have seen investors who have obviously strong, and they should have strong views of like what the, the future is going to look like. But I think there's a difference in understanding the problem space and where things are going, especially if you were in it, versus kind of willing something into existence. Like I almost like being a founder, but like not being the founder, just kind of like trying to put money in anything that kind of looks that way, just because you think that, you know, that company needs to exist. It can be a trap. It sounds like based on what you're saying. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's a good way of framing it. And look, you can look to some of the the most successful enterprise software investors in the world, and I won't name any names, but folks have publicly spoken about, you know, moments in time where they've held such strong conviction around a specific solution to a specific problem that when they came across an interesting company solving it in a different way, you know, they would pass on investing in that company simply because it didn't fit their their kind of vision of the world. And and with the benefit of hindsight, like that's been the wrong decision. So, you know, it's not gonna be it's not gonna be true all the time, but I do think it is a good lesson in in reminding ourselves like the first principles of good venture investing. You know, it's taking signal from founders. That's a super interesting story. You mentioned you talked to apply to ML companies, you're seeing pretty much every MLOps company probably that, that's creating impact. Where do you see the most, I guess, opportunity? Where do you see that people are having the most problems? Yeah, I think I'd answer that question by saying like a kind of higher level secular trend in MLOps that I think is real. And then I'm very excited about is the shift from model centric to data centric. And that's something that, you know, has been publicized for a few years now, but the, the hype around it is starting to match the actual enterprise buying behavior. And, and more than buying behavior, it's almost like a cultural shift in organizations that are actually putting ML into production around prioritizing a data-centric approach versus a model-centric approach. So if that's the high-level trend, 
you know, the next question might be, okay, well, what are the implications for ML ops? And I think they're pretty large because I, I think there's a, a category of new MLOps businesses to be built that enable companies to take that data-centric approach. Because I think a lot of the MLOps companies, super successful ones over the past five years that have come to market are like very centered around a model-centric approach to, to building and deploying ML. So that's, that's, I think, like a trend in MLOps that A, is real and that B, has major implications about and, and C, that I'm, I'm quite excited about. Yeah, I think everyone talks about it a bit differently, but if you were to define like what is model-centric, machine learning, data-centric, what's the difference? Well, I think it's just the, the idea, like at its core, the idea of acknowledging that we can get you know, superior model performance by paying more attention to what's going on in our, on in our data than we can by tweaking model architecture. I think that at its core is like the, the guiding principle. And maybe to speak, you know, practically about the tool changes that might occur. So I think data set curation is a pretty underappreciated and certainly an under-resourced kind of category within, within MLOps. And, you know, over the past six to 12 months, I've seen a lot of businesses coming to market that are MLOps tools that are specifically designed for data set curation in kind of very, very novel and interesting ways that are tied back to model performance. And I don't think we've seen businesses like that before. A lot of these companies are within the unstructured data domain are using an embedding-led approach to actually kind of go out and vectorize the data set, understand where the clusters in that latent vector space are, and then make decisions about how to curate your data set based on what's going on in that vector space. I think that's a good example of an emerging MLOps category that was made real and possible by the shift towards data-centric AI. That's super interesting. I love that definition because it's very simple. <laughs> like there's no buzzword in it. And I saw it myself. I mean, when we were doing recommender systems, I remember sometimes looking at a paper, implementing the architecture. And oftentimes we wouldn't get superior results. And even when we did, we sometimes wouldn't deploy it because we were too afraid. Because we were like, well, like, I mean, I guess it works better, but you know, like, is it really going to work better? Like, what's a, especially a recommender system where it's not obvious, like maybe it will do better most of the time, but there's going to be like 10% of users where it's just awful. And that can be worse over a longer period of time. So we have all kinds of stuff. We built like A-B testing, different models of prod. And, we, and so we have all kinds of cool stuff around that. But yeah, I mean, it definitely is a, I think one thing I talk to companies about who are getting into ML, starting to do more ML, is a lot of people want to build complex features and complex models right off the beginning. And I've talked to big companies that have put all this time and effort to do so. And then I've asked, well, how does it compare to the baseline? They're like, well, there's no baseline. I'm like, well, just like put up a linear regression and see how it does. <laughs> you know, just like do something really simple and then you can at least justify focusing on the model. I think a lot of the time there's a lot of obvious and easy ways to get signal. We have a story where we just added the user agent, like what kind of phone someone was on. And it gave us so much insight as to whether a user was subscribed or not. Especially if you joined it and crossed it with lots of other features. And so, yeah, I always say like sort of simple features, simple model. That's your easiest baseline. It should be very, very quick. Then you can build complex features, get more signal out, keep a simple model. And then eventually like the final stage is, you know, complex features, complex models. And most companies don't get there and don't need to get there. I know like Facebook and some of these really big companies for sure are there. They like actually have pulled out most of the signal from their data in some use cases. And truly the only thing they can do now is focus on the model. But I would say there's probably like 10 companies that can honestly say that they have models at that level. 
No, I think that's right. And I think like it really does beg the question, why wasn't data-centric AI a kind of phenomenon or philosophy earlier than now? Like it's taken 10 years since, you know, nearly 10 years since AlexNet for us to kind of come around to this idea that data is the key aspect when thinking about machine learning. And I think it has a, some amount to do with the academic community, wherein the the incentives around academic papers and publishing and citations and things like that really rewarded researchers who were focused on making incremental improvements to very, very large models. I think that has been the, the kind of culture in and around academia for some time. That is definitely changing now, but I think that certainly sir, plays a large part in the reason why we were kind of living in this model-centric world for so long. I, I think a, a similar way that I've seen to frame that is no one gets their paper published for having an interesting feature engineering approach. It just doesn't happen. I'm sure it can, like little embeddings and stuff, but for a very basic thing, a blog post, sure, but are you going to get a published paper? Probably not. And so I think taking the way, and, and there's obviously a ton of, because of that, like we have things like Dolly and all these other awesome models that exist because of that focus, but for a lot of use cases, especially tabular data, fraud detection, things like that, it's mostly data-centric, I guess, approaches to it, to models. This works better in practice. And I, I think that's like the, a really important distinction. What is interesting to the ML public writ large, it's it's how big is your model? Like what are its capabilities, et cetera? And you see this with all the large language models right now that are kind of being very, very widely publicized. It's almost like an arms race on who has the most parameters. Like that's literally one of the, the kind of core attributes that lead the headlines of these models. But in practice, when you're putting ML into production to solve a business problem in an enterprise, like that is going to be like the last thing on your list that you care about to get good performance and a good result. So I think there's this, there is a bit of a dichotomy between what's fun and exciting and sexy and like what provides core business value. What's a tweet length that people should take away from this podcast? I think a lot of people who are new to machine learning and MLOps in general often feel afraid to kind of dive in headfirst or get their feet wet simply because, you know, this the space and the category can seem so challenging from a, from a technical perspective. But as someone who has kind of entered it and really fully embraced it, who doesn't have a, a deep technical background, I guess my my tweet length takeaway would just would just be to, if you're interested in it, just go and get involved. Go get talking to people. Go get reading papers. Just go and start immersing yourself in uh, the community and the category because it's a super interesting and compelling and exciting part of the technology ecosystem to be involved with. That's awesome. James, thanks so much for hopping on, taking the time to chat with me. Always a pleasure to like, have these conversations with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you.